Great. Well, it's a wonderful um, opportunity we have today to have with us Professor Michael Boylan, uh, who teaches philosophy at Marymount um, University. And I had a chance to chat to him beforehand. And we're particularly lucky because I would describe him as a philosopher who's a practical philosopher, someone who is really engaged in the policy world in a number of domains. So you may have come across his work in bioethics, for example, thinking about ethics as they apply to a variety of aspects of our lives. Um, he has most recently written a book called Philosophy and Innovative Introduction um, with Charles Johnson, and a book, Morality and Global Justice, which some of you may um, be familiar with, Justifications and Applications, which also had part of it a reader, the Morality and Global Justice reader, that involved contributions from a number of scholars around the world. He was actually a fellow, interestingly, at the Center for American Progress in 2007 for two years, where he worked on a number of issues in domestic American politics as well as international issues. Um, and he's here to talk to us today with a provocative title, Does War Have a Meaning? So I will turn it over to Michael, and then we'll, I'm sure, have lots of opportunity for questions. So, hello. There's actually four parts to this uh, this talk, and I'm going to talk through the first two because I think that that they probably are less controversial, and more people have written on them. And and I'll probably, uh, if time doesn't get away, I'll try read the last two. Uh, the first two being on intrastate uh, warfare and non-state sponsored terrorism. Uh, the third part being on robotic warfare, and the last on cyber warfare. Okay, traditionally talk of war has been explained under the canon of just war theory. This paradigm envisions interstate conflicts among uh, sovereign nations. Since the end of World War II, this paradigm has stretched considerably until perhaps it is no longer accurate to describe uh, intrastate and the new technological warfares of cyber and robotic warfare. So if that is the case, you see, and meanings get stretched, uh, uh, then that's kind of uh, the genesis of the title. That is, war as you know it may have uh, uh, no uh, uh, meaning. So under the, the traditional paradigm, war is thought of to be, this is what I'm going to take to be just war theory for the purposes of the paper, an aggressive act by one state against the territory or sovereignty of another state for the purposes of gaining land, resources, or strategic tactical advantage according to the internationally recognized rules and constraints governing actions uh, ad bellum and in bello. The attacking uh, state acts immorally because it caused the conflict. Uh, this is an important feature of the traditional paradigm respecting ad bellum, attacking states who act aggressively with their military personnel out of their own interests in a might-makes-right move, uh, I term to be belligerent craterists. And craterists is a term that I use from the ancient Greek to espouse a theory of justice such that the successful exercise of power is self-justifying. So I've termed this, you know, how in, in justice you have a to each according to a uh, little a slogan. So that's how we try to remember theories of justice. To each according to his ability to snatch it for himself is the slogan for the craterists. I have argued elsewhere that such a worldview is unethical. 
But how far do you go with this assessment? General Sherman in the United States Civil War believed that once one party violated the ad bellum provisions that any imbello options were open to him. But this is to mistake the difference between going to war and, and conducting uh, the war. Uh, Michael Walzer has that famous example where he compares Eisenhower and Rommel. And even though Rommel is part of the evil Nazis, uh, he acts uh, better uh, than Eisenhower in this particular instance he cites. So they are quite distinct and need to be thought of differently. Another way we think of in the traditional paradigm is that the, the wars uh, uh, go about according to rules, and these rules have outcomes. Famous argument from Aristotle's politics goes like this. War may be just or unjust. Uh, premise two, uh, in just wars, virtue and excellence make for winning. Premise three, virtue and ethics are marks of masters. Uh, premise four, in just wars, losers are properly slaves. Inference from two and three. Fifth premise, in unjust wars, virtue and ethics may not account for winning, inference for one and two. Overall conclusion, in unjust wars, slavery may also be unjust. So this is very controversial. It's often brought up as uh, Aristotle's slip-up where he uh, uh, th seems to be defending slavery. But he's thinking of this in terms of a consequence of warfare, which is more like an athletic event than we think of as warfare today. People, uh, you know, got into shape. That war, uh, you know, battles could last uh, a long time. Uh, if you think of, I don't know, rugby matches or American football, it might seem closer to what Aristotle had in mind. And in fact, technological advances, even the phalanx was very controversial because as a uh, tactical device, because it thought it was possibly cheating uh, and giving the Greeks unfair advantage over the Persians. Um, so his idea was that, you know, if you won, then you were clearly got uh, some spoils, which for them included, there are seats over here too, if you want. Don't feel, okay, all right, no problem. So the, the winning side deserves to win, and they deserve all the spoils therein. So, so the first part, which I'm talking through, inter, intrastate. So we're moving out of the interstate to the intrastate model. Uh, and since World War II, and especially since uh, uh, 1990, uh, the, uh, the trend has been more towards intrastate warfare, uh, away from interstate warfare. And the uh, PRIO Institute at, uh, in Oslo, uh, where I've uh, talked uh, before, but not about warfare, actually about gun control, uh, they, uh, they've done a lot of statistics on this, and they document how we have been moving uh, in the world uh, away from warfare, and they have interstate warfare to intrastate warfare, and they have various uh, statistical uh, frames to put around this. Um, so, for example, since 1946, the most war-prone countries in interstate warfare are in order, and you might find this odd, being from the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is number one with 21. Uh, each time you enter a war, it, it counts as another episode, and even small interventions like the Falkland Islands count as, as a war under their statistics. Um, France is number two at 19, and some of these also are post-colonial uh, 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 artifacts. I might mention. The United States at 16 and Russia at 9. 
when we when we change it to adding inter to intrastate warfare and those on behalf of supporting an intrastate uh, intervention such as Korea or Vietnam for example uh, things change but in a, in a very odd way uh, Burma comes out number one uh, 232 uh, so obviously, uh, some of these interventions are just on bordering uh, territories that, that sometimes uh, have been separate and sometimes their nationality is, is uh, not in question, but now we're linking the two together. It's, it's therefore any almost military action outside of their own, uh, well, actually all, anything that would not count as a police action. Uh, in their in their country, so anytime you bring out the troops, and some some countries don't make a distinction between using the military for for uh, uh, keeping the peace and using the military in a war situation, and they're going to get a lot of uh, ticks on the on the register. So that's probably why uh, uh, Burma is number one, India is number two at 156, and uh, United Kingdom's down at 77. I've skipped a few. Uh, the USA is at 49, and Iran closely behind at 48. Okay, so um, if we accept the PREO statistics as accurate, and there's several of these, uh, what do we what do we make of it? Well, remember that the standard paradigm we started out with: one state uh, invades another state, their territory or sovereignty, for the purposes of of gain of some sort. Uh, now we have instances of violence within the state, uh, and it's, uh, it, it takes on a different uh, character. If this is where war is moving, and the trends seem to be that way, that traditional paradigm seems to need uh, some alterations. Now, the traditional paradigm, when you have full-blown civil war, uh, certainly envisioned that, certainly envisioned something like guerrilla war moving to civil war. But what if we're, we're talking about uh, interstate violence that doesn't have the uh, taking over of the country as its goal, but has, say, maybe some sort of other social purpose, such as uh, ethnic cleansing or, or uh, a social purpose of, of uh, identifying issues with a particular group, getting rid of the group so that you can uh, skirt uh, other forms of, of uh, sovereignty and, and win your day by getting rid of the people who are against you. These are, these are possible images of the intrastate future of conventional warfare and what they would probably need for war to maintain its meaning is additions, as inclusions of these sorts of realities into uh, the definitions we put forth. And so uh, that's, that's the, the first category. Second category, which I also talked through, is non-state uh, sponsored terrorism. And these are, there are several varieties of this. It, it's, uh, we're not so, so what we're, what we're making the, out of bounds is, you know, the late uh, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, uh, who had uh, notoriously uh, state-sponsored terrorism. You know, most uh, close to home here would be, you know, the Lockerbie <coughs> bombing and so forth. Um, we're, those are out of bounds. We're not going to talk about those because those could be construed as attacks by a state against another state. So instead what we're looking at are, are different group such as, well one would be illegal activity. In the United States, especially southern United States and Mexico, for example, we have a lot of uh, illegal drug activity and terrorism by the uh, these 
drug cartels uh, against peoples in Mexico and the United States. And their purpose is to create a feeling of terror in the population so that they won't turn them in, so that they can exist uh, uh, carte blanche. This worked earlier in the United States during the Prohibition era by you know, uh, the Sicilian Mafia and other groups who were involved in terrorism. And it worked then. They, they try it to work now. So we've got criminals who are breaking law of the country, using terrorist tech, uh, tactics so that they can operate with impunity. OK, and, and, and so far, that's been fairly successful in the United States. Uh, the drug trade is greater than ever. And despite what various politicians like Rick Perry, of governor of Texas, might say, um, they don't really have a handle on it much at all. Okay, then we have other ones that the groups that, that seem to have other motivations, some of them are political, some of them seem to be just to wreak havoc on the uh, presiding society. Back to the uh, Red Brigade in Europe during the 70s, uh, they were very prominent in Central Europe, Germany, and uh, they didn't want to take over Germany. They, weren't, they didn't want to become like a guerrilla outfit, they didn't want to change the government. They were interested in creating havoc. Uh, they, they were angry, uh, disaffected, hard to know what, what their motivations are. We've had lots of different accounts. Even, even the Bader Meinhof group gave different accounts every time someone would question them in, in prison. Uh, I don't know, really know if they know why they were doing it. Uh, we had in the United States the Symbionese Liberation Army and, and others that were acting in a similar fashion. <coughs> Uh, today we have a lot of splinter groups in the Middle East, uh, such as Al-Qaeda. Why do, why do they operate? Uh, it's difficult to know. It doesn't seem that they want to establish their own government. It doesn't seem like they want to create, say, a, a, a new a government in Afghanistan. Obviously, Al-Qaeda being separate from Taliban, who obviously do want to establish another government. But uh, uh, they seem to be interested in wreaking havoc. And, and uh, let's see, I was at uh, a policy briefing at Georgetown University about two weeks ago. And they were talking about you know, the effects of the Arab Spring and so forth and what would happen. And you know, Tunisia sounded really great because I, uh, I, I'm not an expert on the Middle East, but uh, the people who are giving uh, testimony were, and they said that they uh, have lots of family relations, that the people, uh, are, they have a, a, a lot of cronyism, and they thought that they could have stability from all these family relations and cronyism in a way that Egypt and Libya might not, and Libya being especially problematic because uh, many of the tribe, tribal factions didn't like each other. And, and, and this, this happens in the post-colonial world. As you know, when, when we left, we, I'd say I'm not uh, the colonialist, but uh, uh, aligning myself to whatever powers they are for the purposes of this set of comments, left these countries, oftentimes they created artificial boundaries. One of the most notorious was Nigeria. Uh, they had many tribes that were put together that hated each other, and they still hate each other. Why, why, when they bro broke up the country uh, and left, why not leave uh, 47 different countries than one country in which everyone hates each other? Remember in Perpetual Peace by Immanuel Kant, he said, 
that if you have smaller countries, even if they do make war, it's less problematic. That you can have less havoc because they just don't have the manpower to to do it. So uh, you know, and around the world, the post-colonial system often uh, left countries that were artificially created just because there were deals between France and Germany and, and, and Britain, and they said, "Well, we'll do it this way. We'll take this, you take that." And they're kind of artificial constructs. Sometimes they followed rivers, sometimes they followed mountains, sometimes they just followed whatever the people in the room wanted to do. So this may have something to do with the non-state supported terrorism and may link to the first category of interstate violence again because it, a creating a violent act can be sometimes the only uh, way that some group of people know of, of making a statement. It's a rather odd statement, especially if you kill yourself in doing it, but it, it seems to be a reality on the ground. And another change or addition to our understanding of what war is now so that war can have meaning as we talk about it going forth. And, you know, Tim McVeigh, there's a lot of these cases that you can talk about. I've said, I talked through that section, so I just talked through it. Uh, okay, so you're probably more interested here, and I think in the last two categories, robotic warfare and cyber warfare. Since there's been lots of changes and not much has been done policy-wise. So, uh, Let's consider, we, there are many sorts of robots that, that perform war duties. And a lot of them are kind of duties that, that you wouldn't think of as offensive, like robots that defuse bombs or robots that do uh, uh, reconnaissance work. And they have robots that, uh, from the Navy that go out in, in little uh, tiny uh, ships or subs and they go try, try to find out who's where. And they can even attack if they wanted to, but they rarely are used. Uh, the ones that are used most right now are the drones. And uh, at the beginning of the Gulf War, or Gulf Wars as you say, the U.S. had really no robotic warfare capability. Since the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the number has grown to 7,000 unmanned aircraft and 12,000 robotic ground vehicles. So if we, uh, uh, Singer has written uh, quite a bit about this, so if we accept his connection to robotic warfare to Moore's law and, uh, and computer science, that is uh, every 18 months memory will double and computer power just keeps exponentially growing, we can imagine, since these robots are run by computers, what the future will bring. Uh, many, many, many warbots. So, uh, Peter Singer, not not the you know Australian Peter Singer, uh, um, has written about the origins of robots, and he he claims, and I have nothing to say against it, that uh, Carl Kapik, uh, you invented this term, and from a Czech word in a play, uh, in which you had. Uh, uh, mechanical servants doing the bidding of their masters. So we're thinking of robots from that, and he, I guess the word is robotniks. And they were going to lead a peasant revolution, I guess. This, think of this in kind of a Stalinist way. And uh, we've had spin-offs of this, like uh, you know the Terminator and the Matrix, uh, popular movies. And people have thought about what happens as these robots develop. And, you know, you have the side argument. At, at some point, if the robots have 
uh, a capacity to reason, if, however we define that, we have to have a good definition, uh, then they may, and if you have a moral theory that grounds respect and ability to reason, as you have, say, for Kant, uh, and myself, uh, then you're going to have a problem because your robots are going to have more respect as well. And, and they become another form of life. Okay, so that's down the road, and most of my responses are going to be before that. So, because robots don't make any sense if you think of them as alive, because then there's no real great advantage of using robots as opposed to people if robots are considered to have moral status. The big advantage of robots is we think they have no moral status. It's just a little machine that you throw in there and it gets crunched up, right? As a loss. Now, we're thinking about this in the terms of lowering the bar about going to war, all right? Uh, being from the United States, uh, I've seen this happen uh, by, uh, by stages. Richard Milhouse Nixon, uh, who had been given the Vietnam War from Lyndon Baines Johnson when uh, Nixon was elected in 1968, on the pledge, just like Eisenhower, I will get you out of Vietnam. Well, um, Nixon felt that one of the problems of the Vietnam War, handling it as a policy issue, was that we had the draft in the United States, and anybody could go. I mean, had the Vietnam War lasted eight months longer, I would have gone. I had number 13 in the, in the draft, and they, uh, thankfully for me, for me that uh, the war ended when it did. But uh, every son of a millionaire, son of a factory worker, everyone was subject to the draft, and no one could get out of the draft except for very specific exemptions. And they, there weren't too many of them, really. Okay, so that meant that, you know, if everybody's son at that time and, and still today in the United States, only men can be drafted males. Uh, if, you're, if your son can be drafted, you have an interest in the war. Now, Nixon created the volunteer army to get rid of that, uh, that objection. Now you say, oh, everybody in the army wants to be in the army. Why should I care? They've made a choice, assumed risk. They know the risks that were involved. They did it to help their education, or they did it because they, they, they like being soldiers or some other reason. Therefore, if something happens to them, I don't have an obligation for empathy uh, for them because they chose this as their career, knowing what could happen to them. That lowered the bar significantly. Uh, and made it possible for the uh, certainly the two Bush wars, uh, Afghanistan war and the Iraq war, uh, to be a push with very little opposition in the United States. It would have been a far different thing if the draft had still existed. The second thing is paying for your wars. Uh, since the Vietnam War, Lyndon Johnson famously talked about guns and butter. That is, we can fight the war and we can have economic growth at the same time. We can have a war and not pay for it. Uh, this was also famous at the same time, uh, George uh, W. Bush, uh, he cut taxes uh, at the same time he was going to war. So instead of levying taxes, which had been American history, the income tax, for example, was developed to pay for the Civil War, uh, World War I, World War II, and so forth. We had special taxes. We're going to war, the higher expenditure. We need to all suffer, everybody. Even if you don't have a, a, a son or daughter going to war, everybody has to pay for it. That was another bar to make it harder to go to war. If you know you're going to have to pay for it, you'll be less likely to go to war. So we have the draft and we have no taxes. These are examples of lowering the bar. Now, if you don't have to even send people, that's lowering the bar even more, right? 
if you only have to send robots to war, it makes it much easier to go to war because you're probably less concerned about the death of a robot or the destruction of a robot. We don't even like to use the word death of robots, right? If, if someone said to you, oh, I got mad and broke my Singer sewing machine or my Hooper vacuum cleaner, would you say, oh, you terrible person, you broke your vacuum cleaner? My, I'm going to shun you. I'm not going to talk to you anymore to show my moral displeasure at your conduct. Uh, that'd be a highly uh, unusual response, wouldn't it? Uh, we have very little, since we're not even talking about those smart machines I mentioned a moment ago, we, we assume that there's no moral respect at all given to machines. Therefore, uh, if only machines are fighting, or doing a great deal of fighting, the bar drops down. Uh, when, when Americans were f flying manned missions against uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, there was some concern that, that occasionally a, a pilot might be shot down and killed, even worse, shot down and not killed, because then they would show on the internet pictures of them being tortured and, and saying, you know, I don't like Mickey Mouse or something. You know, that's probably the worst thing you can say in America. Uh, okay, so... Um, this is this is this is the, uh, the first change of just war theory is that the idea of going to war becomes different because uh, of this lower bar. The second uh, is uh, reliability and civilian casualties. Uh, this becomes a more complicated question because it gets mixed up with the drones already in service in the United States. In 2009, as many as 709 deaths were attributed to drone strikes in Pakistan, and at least one third of these were civilian. That's a pretty high uh, collateral damage rate, isn't it? Uh, this track record is when systems were operating well, but there have been cases where technology did not perform as promised. For example, in 1988, a Navy cruiser using automatic detection system in the Persian Gulf shot down an Iranian passenger plane killing 200 people. In 2007, the first batch of armed tank robots called SWORDS fired their guns on friendly forces. A CRAM in Iraq did target a U.S. helicopter, incorrectly identifying it as an enemy ro uh, rocket fire. Singer also reports that swords in the field inexplicably began whirling around chaotically during a, a field demonstration, firing all over the place instead of at a directed target. On the other side, there are clear advantages. For example, a drone can accelerate past the speed that a human operator can in an airplane because a human operator would pass out. In other words, it can accelerate and get these speeds that a human couldn't. That makes it more effective in the field. It can also execute evasive uh, maneuvers that humans can't. These planes are also more ecological because they can be programmed to fly at maximum fuel efficiency. So these are the advantages balanced to the disadvantages I, uh, I just mentioned. Okay, then, uh, then we next say, who, is, uh, who are operating the systems? Traditionally, we have warriors fighting warriors in, in just war theory. Uh, the drones are often, uh, and almost actually always, operated by the CIA, who are civilian employees. So we have civilians out of the theater of a battle. Uh, sometimes there's a big uh, uh, a place in Nevada where they operate. Uh, Nevada is a western state in the United States. Uh, and they're uh, in uh, Nevada controlling planes that are uh, going to Pakistan. So you have civilians running planes that are uh, in, in Pakistan. Again, you can either uh, change your uh, idea that, that, that warfare makes a sharp distinction between civilians and military. 
you can change the CIA and only have military people flying these. Uh, if, you, if you care about the theater of, of, of engagement, you can make them uh, right off the uh, Pakistan in like an aircraft carrier or something. I mean, there, there are ways you could fix it. But at present, uh, there, there seems to be a kind of a divergence from traditional understanding of how warfare is conducted. So who's operating the systems is another challenge uh, to robotic warfare. Now, uh, some would demur and say that, uh, that only those civilians who are engaged in guiding the warfares lose their immunity because we're concerned, you know, about if civilians are engaged in the conflict, have we given up civilian immunity for all our civilians? Some would say, you know, the traditionally we've thought of people working in a munitions factory, only those civilians lose their immunity and the rest of the civilians retain their immunity. You could say that only those civilians who are operating the drones lose their immunity and all the rest don't. Uh, yeah, that's maybe a patch, but th there might be a real conceptual problem here by bringing in computer operators, and that's why they're using the, the civilians, because I guess th that's our, our, in our intelligence agency, we have some of the best uh, computer people. Uh, they, they're, they're brought in, and they're brought in sometimes at a very low oversight level. There's one operator is looking at maybe 30 aircraft at once, and then they have a way to get their attention, and they can quickly divert to another operator and put all his attention on, on plane number 32 or something. Uh, this, is, this is certainly uh, possible, but it, it really we, it has been done kind of haphazardly. We haven't really thought about the ethics of war and how we're uh, creating and arranging this robotic warfare with the drones. Okay, the last uh, subsection in our uh, trouble on the uh, drones uh, here uh, is fairness. Um, sometimes people think like General Sherman that fairness isn't something we talk about with war. But there might be an issue that at the moment of this essay, there are 40 countries that have some level of robotic warfare, including Iran and China. But the United States has the most developed uh, drones in the world and land tanks, debombing robots, and unmanned vessels for naval reconnaissance and attack. Uh, so what do you have? If, a, if you have a warfare situation, you, have, you think you can fight and have a response in the traditional theory. What if there's no longer any response capability? because you have such a technological advantage uh, that, uh, that you cease to be able to properly respond. Does this change the traditional paradigm of what war should be? Uh, it, for example, say, say you had troops, even if the troops were very strong coming in, say like the Nazis coming in to Belgium or something, uh, you still had the theoretical possibility of acting uh, against them, fighting against them. Uh, you might choose not to because you think it was senseless loss of life. But uh, if you have these drones, uh, you have a machine, and, and the, the, the uh, humans involved in Nevada, how would you possibly, unless you sent a, a sleuth group into Nevada to try to blow up their, their system, uh, how could you fight against them? It seems that at least it stretches the conventional understanding of what retaliation is. Um, okay, uh, let's let's move on to the last section. I skip the rest of the, the robot section, and we'll think about cyber warfare. Okay, so the traditional paradigm here is altered because uh, killing, though it may occur, is not primary. 
uh, attribution is not always clear who commits the acts, uh, like the Stuknik virus. The conceptualization of tax and response, again, needs further clarification. So alterations. First is the change in the normal way we think of an act of war. Earlier I suggested that it was an aggressive act by one state against the territory or sovereignty of another state for the purpose of gaining land resources or strategic advantage according to internationally recognized rules and constraints. Well, uh, the, the traditional understanding requires aggressive act of one state against the territory or sovereignty of another and a telos of gaining land resources or strategic advantage. And both of these call, are called into question by uh, cyber warfare. Um, so traditionally, uh, you, you, for example, the delivery system is either via the internet or the agency of a fifth column person who has malware on a flash drive, and which was the probable launch of the Stutnex uh, worm. So, um, so among the attacks agents we have are viruses, generally wouldn't be used for warfare. It's malware that attaches itself to a file program or email and replicates. The only time they use this is when they want to overload a site. They, they would sometimes attack a site and, and shut it down because it replicates so much that the site can't hold it. And if it's an important site, there are some sites that, that could really hurt a country if you shut them down. As silly as it might seem, if you shut down Amazon.com, you've altered uh, the United States commerce in some significant ways. The second uh, or more uh, interesting one is the worm. It's a freestanding program that can be more targeted, like the Stutnex worm that was used against Iran by either Israel, the United States, or both. That's our best guess. This might be the malware of choice in the near term for cyber war arsenals. Uh, now, if you have an intranet system, then you need an insider. That's why I call a fifth column person. Somebody who's going to come in and infect the system from the inside because it's not available from the outside. And this is, of course, the, what they did with the nuclear system in, in Iran. Okay, so uh, a third would be the Trojan horse. So like the worm, it's not self-replicating though it's not as easily detectable because it kind of comes in on a time delay and it can be a slip under firewall protections because of this and can be also uh, delivered into internet systems. So, and sometimes you mix the two. So, for example, in 2000, Israel disabled the public websites of Hezbollah and the Palestinian National Authority. In 2001, because of a maritime dispute, China launched an attack against a California electric plant that caused the grid to shut down. In the case of the Stutnik, the worm target was a nuclear power plant that intelligence said was being converted to create nuclear weapons. The goal uh, was to disable, and it's worked. However, in other cases, we sometimes mixed uh, the two warfares. In September 19, uh, 2007, Israel launched a cyber attack against the radar and anti-aircraft devices in Syria. Then this maneuver was followed by the Israelis successfully bombing a nuclear facility that might have been on the verge of creating nuclear weapons. So they first got rid of the anti-aircraft uh, radar, and then they sent their planes in so they wouldn't be uh, shot down or detected. And one could imagine uh, the air traffic systems uh, that could be uh, attacked and civilian loss of life occurring uh, because many times you have dual use uh, uh, radar systems and because you may have a, the intent of, of, of hurting uh, military anti-aircraft but because they can't uh, protect civilian planes, civilian planes go down and there's civilian loss of life. Electric grids could disrupt fire police and hospitals, 
and create domestic havoc. Again, civilian uh, uh, repercussions. Food stores, sewage plants, water purification could all be affected. Or what if there was a cyber attack on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, forcing it to you know, go down to whatever the breaknet levels. They do have automatic levels. They stop trading at a certain point. But you could imagine a concerted attack in which you could cause significant economic uh, havoc. No matter what the delivery device, attacks on electric grids or the stock market would have wide-ranging effects that would blur military and civilian uh, non-combatant targets. Okay. Um, how about attribution and target distinction? Attribution is one of the toughest things because of the Internet and because the Internet is, is devoted to uh, privacy. Uh, we don't really know who is uh, uh, starting the attack. That's why we, even with the, the worm with the uh, uh, flash drive, we, they, they have no idea for sure who did that. This is maybe one of the worst things about cyber warfare is uh, that it, it, we, uh, we wouldn't be able to attribute who is committing the uh, uh, aggression. And, and because the world over is a, is a, a grid, uh, your ability to be neutral in war can be violated because we could go right across your country uh, and, and uh, without your permission. Uh, so there's a number of great challenges in cyber warfare that, that need to be addressed. One way that we could do uh, make a great change would be to change the way in which uh, computer war, uh, computers operate. If computers had a device that would signal who they are and where they are, uh, the privacy would be lost on the Internet. Now, I know a lot of people love the privacy on the Internet. And it's one of the things that they, they think is most valuable. But it's also that which can create the biggest problems when we can uh, connect this to cyber warfare. Uh, in my Blackwell series, Public Philosophy, I've got a guy who's overdoing a book on this very topic uh, of evil and the Internet and what privacy has to do with bad things that occur on the Internet. Uh, a way to, again, to solve this, and it's technologically possible, I've been told, uh, is to uh, identify, give up uh, Internet privacy and identify if it, whatever you do can be tracked back to you, or your computer at least. Okay? Uh, so we, we can see that the target distinction, we don't know, you know, uh, we can't say we're necessarily attacking military targets, attribution of who did it, territory neutrality. Uh, these are all ways in which uh, uh, we have a problem with the traditional theory. It, it renders uh, meaningless uh, the uh, traditional understanding of war. So in our search in this paper to find a meaning to war, we had to look at one more problem in cyber warfare. And that's uh, attack and response. There's certainly two ways we can imagine this in cyber warfare. Cyber attack, cyber response. If we knew who did it and we attack back in kind. But it becomes more complicated if we think of this. Say you don't have the capability of a, a cyber response. What if you have a conventional response to a cyber attack? What if because of attribution you make a mistake and you kill lots of people in a country that really didn't do it because you had prejudice. You said, oh yes, I'm sure they did it. I'm sure it was the Iranians. They did it, right? Uh, uh, they, they, they committed this cyber attack and, uh, and so forth. Or if you're in the Middle East and you might say, uh, Israel did it to us. We know Israel had to do it because we're enemies of the state of Israel. Uh, you can imagine great problems with the cyber attack conventional response uh, 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 scenario. It, again, creates great 
challenges to the way we understand war. So what can we do? Policy things, all right? This is the end of the paper, so you get your questions ready now. Uh, uh, to address the new reality of interstate war, major armies of the world should prepare for multilateral action in the role of nation building. Soldiers of the future should be trained more in the skills of policing than in traditional combat roles reserved for national defense. Non-state-sponsored terrorism is best handled by a cooperative international intelligence network. Where possible, the suspects should be captured and tried under the existing laws of the state from which they reside, or when there's a failed plot, or uh, when there's a failed plot, or after the terrorist incident uh, in the state where the terrorist action took place. Second, regarding robotic and cyber warfare, new rules must be drawn up. These rules uh, governing anything will only work when participating parties agree to the rules and the mechanisms for enforcement. In two years at the Center for American Progress, it became apparent to me that both of these proposals will not be easy to accomplish. Some suggestions. One, in the case of cyber warfare, move away from at-fault liability mindset, the ad bellum traditional mindset, move away from that, and move into a strict liability mindset. This new mindset would look at damage caused by some actor and move it to international civil law, since the attribution problem is so high. The new mindset would look at damage caused by some actor and move it to the civil law. We'd have to have agreeable penalties and so forth. Because the top 75 economies have most of the assets in the world in their banks, or it's probably easy to uh, uh, enforce uh, fines. In the case of robotic and cyber warfare, there needs to be a set of internationally rec recognized compensation for when we do kill civilians, hurt civilians, injure them. Uh, international insurance companies already have these. It was a great problem after 9-11, uh, uh, having compensation for the families that died or were injured. Uh, that's, that proved to be a great a problem. It took a number of years for it to be resolved. Time to do it is not after incidents, but before. So we should have a new uh, international uh, tribunal for that. A fifth, fourth is a fifth uh, Geneva Convention. Um, and we would talk about issues of robotic and cyber warfare and restrict unjust actors in interstate warfare and non-state uh, sponsored terrorism. So these are, these are four uh, policy suggestions. Wouldn't it be a blessing in disguise if the contemporary challenges to just war theory of international conflict actually resulted in a new mechanism rooted in recognized uh, law and backed up by a global banking system that was actually able to find an original way to settle acts of aggression on territory and sovereignty of another nation through recognized legal protocols instead of the shedding of blood in the traditional wave or via robots or cyber destruction. <coughs> The integration of an updated rule of international law that is enforceable would bring just war theory up to date and give a new positive meaning to war. That's it. <laughs>